Behind every amazing flavor is an amazing human who has perfected their craft. Welcome to Flavors Unknown. A behind-the-scenes look at new flavors and the chefs, pastry chefs, and bartenders who create them with your host, Emmanuel. There are four keywords that are critical in the life of my guest today. Farms, foraging, fermentation, and fire. For Chef Misty Norris at Petra and the Beast in Dallas, Texas, these four keywords best describe her style and passion. Welcome to episode 60 of the Flavors Unknown podcast. I am your host, Emmanuel LaRoche. If you are new to this podcast, I have been in the food industry for more than 20 years, both in Europe and in the US, and every other week, I interview trending chefs, pastry chefs, and mixologists from around the country. If you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe to it and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Flavors Unknown, and you can find the show notes from these episodes and all the other episodes on the website flavorsunknown.com. Do you know that Petra come from Petrichor, the head scent of the first rain on a dry soil? This smell that so captivates Norris that she named her restaurant for it. She talks about awful charcuterie, pasta, and she shares a recipe of pork rillette. Hi, chef. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm pretty good. Thank you. And I'm really excited to have you on uh, the podcast Flavors Unknown. Oh, awesome. Yeah, I'm super excited. <laughs> Thank you. So how are you navigating through the, the current situation of the pandemic? I mean, it's going pretty well. Obviously, as you know, tons of other chefs, owners, small business owners, you know, restaurants all the way around. It's just kind of been day by day. You know what I mean? You can't even look and say, oh, it's week by week. It's literally day by day. You know, you may have to pivot really quick, you know, from a Friday to a Saturday or, you know, within a couple of days. But overall, you know, my staff is good. They're healthy. We've been able to keep everyone on staff which is really great. With that being said, that doesn't mean that there hasn't been like insane challenges along the way to kind of figure out how to do that financially and mentally and everything else sure. that goes with it. So have you done something specific and particular, you know, during the pandemic, uh, change, uh, changes on the menu or pivoted a part of uh, your business? Anything that you, you could share with us? Yeah, absolutely. So when this all started, we had a pretty pretty set day and kind of schedule how we did things Wednesday through Friday and Sunday. We did a la carte. Saturday, we did tastings and we booked those out and that'd be all we did. And obviously, you know, once this all started, we cut off complete contact, you know, for everyone's safety. And we went to a curbside menu for a little bit, a little bit more comforting, like comfort food. Dishes are a little more approachable, but still within our philosophy, we never stopped using our farms, continuing supporting our local, you know, smaller businesses as well. And we started doing kind of like a take home family style dinner on Sundays, you know, just to kind of keep that normalcy for people, you know, and 
especially them wanting to go out and trying to stay safe and not wanting to come in contact. So that was something that we did. And then about, let's see, four months ago, we started bringing back our tastings. And we did that during the week instead and took away all the cart. But it's all outdoors and we try to make it as safe as possible. Everyone has a solid six feet between them. We have sanitizers and all that stuff. But yeah, it's kind of like I said, it's, we probably changed. It's like we um, started over, you know, like four different times just trying to keep up with the safety as well as knowing what our guests in clientele want mm-hmm. as well, you know. So let's talk a little bit about your your concepts, Petra and the Beast. And, you know, just for the listener that you are based in Dallas. So that explains as well that uh, you guys can extend like uh, the time of eating outside <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> compared to other parts of the country. What is like the, the, the concept of, uh, of the restaurant? The concept for the restaurant has always been within a philosophy of sustainability. We are a low waste kitchen. Um, and that means that Anything that gets thrown away either gets composted or we preserve. We focus a lot on fermentation. So we have a lot of different outlets for, you know, maybe the grains of, you know, turnips that may not be used or aren't, you know, perfect for plating or anything like that or scraps of stuff that we'll make aminos out of or fish bones or chick, you know, that's kind of like our, our main philosophy is to be low waste and sustainable as possible within the realm of. Uh, supporting our smaller farms and we have great relationships with our farmers around us and they've been a huge help as well so it's kind of a very almost like a community-based philosophy that we have for our restaurant so how do you um, create a like long-term relationship with uh, your purveyors and you know the farmers how do you approach like uh, the connection with them and the collaboration our farmers are really awesome and a lot of times it's, you know, kind of family based more times than not. And you kind of it's kind of easy to form that relationship with them, especially if you have the same kind of ideals. And a lot of time, you know, they're kind of like us. A lot of small farms don't make, you know, a ton of money. They're not in to make, you know, millions of dollars. They're in it for their passion. And that's something, especially the farmers that we work with, that we kind of have in common. So pretty easy to build those relationships as long as you're constantly you know they want feedback we want feedback from them and we're really good about you know if someone messages us and they're like hey we have 20 pounds of this overgrown something can you use it and more times than not we're like yeah we'll take it you know we'll preserve it now we'll use it instead of having that go to compost or go in the trash or you know wherever it would go so that's kind of how we've built our relationships with the farms that we work with currently and so you're talking about sustainability, which is, uh, you know, the, the concept of, of the restaurant and really using all the, the parts, you know, of um, uh, fruits, of veggies and uh, the animal as well. How would you suggest someone either being like a home chef and, you know, to do something or home cook, I should say, so something like this, um, you know, at, at your home? And what, what's the best approach if the people want to... Um, think about sustainability so i would say like you just have to look at every part of what you're bringing into your home you know keep in mind that 
you know, I think your first thought should always be no waste, you know, like it shouldn't be buying more than you're going to make or, you know, just think about the byproduct. Like if you have those scraps from vegetables, go out of your way a little bit and make fresh vegetable stock versus buying it. You know, you have carcass from a chicken or even a rabbit or a lamb, whatever, and use that and make your stocks, you know, and then that also cuts down the waste and especially all the commodity products that are out there that, you know, these a lot of animals and produce isn't necessarily grown properly. And I think the biggest thing is keeping in mind that what you're buying, you don't know where that came from and that's going in your body versus bringing something in and you know exactly what is in that chicken stock. You know exactly what's in your vegetable stock, you know. But it's also fun, you know what I mean? You get to season things the way you want and kind of cater it to your palate and your family's palate. Yeah, I think that's the biggest thing is just keeping in mind from the very beginning what what your thought process is, you know, from the start. You mentioned before that you have these uh, tasting menus, you know, on Saturdays. And um, this is like quite a bit of courses that you have on the tasting menu. So can you describe a little bit to us how do you approach the creation of, uh, of a tasting menu versus like a, like a regular menu? Right. So for the tasting menus, it's really fun for us. I mean, it's all fun, but this is something we spend pretty much all week kind of thinking about and thinking about. The weather is very much something that inspires, you know, the dishes that go on. We look every week, you know, what our farmers have available. We're very in touch with like seasonality. So if we know, oh, it's getting cold next week, you know, these tomatoes or these peppers are not going to be available. So we grab them, you know, as soon as we can and try to do different versions. So one thing we love to do, especially for tastings, is take one vegetable that we have used different techniques or methods for and do it multiple different ways on a dish. And a lot of times that ends up being, you know, for example, turnips. We'll use fresh turnips because turnips are great right now, especially the little beautiful hikores. They're so sweet. And then we'll take, you know, on that same dish, a turnip ferment that's a year and a half old. We'll use the leaves and we'll make an emulsion out of it. We'll make a broth with the stems. We'll you know, so we try to really focus and really highlight, you know, certain ingredients. And that's something that we try to do with almost every dish in the tasting menu is take it, even if it's something like beef heart, we'll do it a couple different ways and hopefully try to, you know, change people's mind about, you know, offal especially. And that's also the tasting is where we kind of push that a lot too. How does it work? You know, are you successful of um, converting people, especially when you're talking about offal and, you know, when you're talking about beef heart or, you know, right. pig's parts or like chicken heart, you know, veal tongue, you know, and um, all, all of this is, <laughs> it might be, it could be challenging. You're totally right. I mean, for people who aren't, it's not their, you know, norms to like eat these different parts that are not, you know, you don't just find them at the grocery store a lot of times. But we really put a lot of thought into the way we present it, you know, the way it looks, the way it smells, the way it's prepared. And more times than not, we've changed a lot of people's minds. But not to say that that has happened overnight. I've been doing more offal focused cooking for now about six years. And at the first restaurant I was at, I was an exact 
it took a little bit, you know, it took people a little bit of building trust with you to know that this may not be a common cut or part that you would normally eat. But once they start trying a couple of things and they realize that it's super delicious and you get, you know, especially, you know, pigtails and oxtail and ham hocks, like there's all this cartilage collagen that comes out and it's this texture that they've never experienced before and once they get that curiosity that starts to kind of snowball you know and it makes it a little easier for people to be a little more comfortable to say like oh yeah I will try that you know like this was really good and I thought I'd never eat it before but yeah the tastings has been really good with that a few weeks ago we like I said we did a beef card dish and out of everybody that was their favorite dish of everything you know, we had pasta, we had a straight vegetable dish, and that was everyone. How, how was the, yeah. the beef heart uh, prepared? This one, we prepared the beef heart, cut it kind of into strips. It was then marinated in a shio koji and smoked kale powder for about oh, cool. 48 hours. And then we cooked it at 56 degrees Celsius for about... I would say about three hours and the product, the final product ended up looking almost like a small tenderloin. So it was super clean, very beautiful, bright red um, with that little touch of smoke. And then we also did raw beef heart that we made a vinaigrette with preserved citrus kosho from last year and our garden herbs. And I believe we also put pumpkin, twisted pumpkin seeds with it for texture. And so that raw beef heart went on top with a couple of marigolds and a marigold oil with that smoked beef heart. And it was just, it was such a great balance. And it's got really good acid from the raw um, and texture. And everyone just loved it, you know, and that makes us feel really good that we were able to represent what we do the way we want to and the way that we respect, you know, the animals or vegetable and have other people like really get taken back. Like, wow, that was really crazy. You know? So you're talking about Koji. I'm, I'm uh, guessing so in fermentation, obviously you're doing quite a bit of pickling. And so how do you use uh, Koji? I'm, I'm just curious. I had uh, not too long ago, uh, Chef Jeremy Omansky, you know, um, on on the podcast. So we definitely talk a lot about Koji. Oh man! Uh, I, <laughs> but I, I just, I'm just curious about the way you uh, you use it at uh, Petra and the Beast. So first off, I have to say Jeremy is amazing. Absolutely, just like adore everything that he does. We try to follow. Yeah, he's a very nice guy too. Absolutely, yeah. so intelligent, so smart. But a lot of the stuff that we do is definitely inspired by a lot of things that he's done and he's founded and created, you know. We use a lot of koji in our uh, charcuterie. So we have a really wonderful charcuterie program. We have two main farms that we work with and we'll get, you know, Berkshires or Herefords, Red Wattles, all kinds of heritage breeds from them. But we do, we inoculate a lot of our whole cuts with koji spores. We also do a ton of pickling with Chio Koji. We use Sagohachi, a lot of Kasu, a lot of Saki leaves, uh, ferments, all kinds of stuff. And we're always experimenting. We're always trying new things. It's such a cool ingredient. You know, it, it just, it's evolving. You know, you start with one ferment and you see what happens there. You start with inoculating one cut and then you just, you know, it's never ending. 
you find time to do this? You know, yes. in, in between, like, <laughs> I'm always, uh, <laughs> you know, fascinating with uh, the, the fact that uh, chefs, you know, find, find time to, um, you know, to experiment and do some development work and research work on top of like the, the day to day and, uh, you know, the pressure and on top of the whole situation currently of the pandemic, which is doesn't, right. you know, help. So how, how do you do this? I mean, are you carving some time? In a certain part of the week, or uh, it's sometimes just depends. Yeah, it just depends. I mean, I think it it's just one of those things. And yeah, you know, there's a ton of like you said, day to day. There's a lot of, especially a lot of more anxiety now. You know, there's different things you're having to figure out. You know, financially or even during the day and all that kind of stuff. But I mean, I don't know. It just kind of comes one of those things. Like you really. Like when you really love something, like you, you make time for it, you know, and that may mean your one day off. That may mean your, you know, one afternoon that you have five hours to just do something, but more times than not experimenting and gaining knowledge and, you know, figuring out this stuff. It's relaxing, you know what I mean? Especially when it is your day off and you know, you've got a few hours just to focus on this and not deal with service, deal with orders. So it's, it's very therapeutic, I will say. So you definitely, we definitely make time for it. So there's four words that are very important for you. That's farm, foraging, fermentation, and fire. So can you explain to, you, to us what each represents, uh, you know, for you and, and why they are so important? So when Petra and the Beast first started, before we were for like an actual restaurant, I was just doing pop-ups, you know, I was thinking about things that were important to me and what I wanted to represent with this name and what I wanted to represent with the future restaurant that it would be. And these were the four things that were extremely important to me. I have a love of live fire cooking. I spent about a year and a half, two years just traveling up the East Coast and kind of doing foraging a lot and doing like these pop-ups I did them here in open fire was always a very important part of that fermentation uh has always just kind of been part of you know my upbringing and kind of what we do now and you know I learned as a young child growing up with my dad we'd go visit my momo a lot and you know she had this really beautiful garden they grow their own tomatoes they did all this stuff so Fermentation, I kind of started learning from her and then canning and the art of preserving and everything. So that kind of embodies the whole fermentation. I kind of see it as like preservation. And then the next one is foraging. So foraging, that's, that was something that came about, let's see, I started foraging about five, no, six, seven years ago. And that, when I started foraging, that just opened up so many different windows, you know, thought processes that I never really thought about before and methods and techniques. Cause you know, you go out, you spend this time and instead of, you know, it's so much different than going to a farm and picking, you know, something or going to the grocery store and picking up a box of mushrooms. Like there's nothing like learning where to go and what to look for and finding, you know, a wild edible mushroom or a wild green, you know, like garlic scapes and all of that great stuff that we have. And especially in Texas, it's a little harder. 
So it's a little more satisfying when you actually find something because you've got to really look. It's not like being in, you know, Pacific Northwest or even the East Coast, you know, where there's fiddleheads and chanterelles and you just go anywhere. There's radish greens and beach, you know, sand fire, all of yep. Wild garlic, wild onions. Oh my yeah. gosh. Oh, so good. Like I had the best time going up the East Coast. But yeah, in Texas, it's a little different. So it actually, it means a little bit more, you know what I mean? When you find that may pop you know, patch that you just kind of stumbled upon or you find, you know, where you go and everyone has their spots for mulberries and dewberries and all these great things that come up. So it's, that's a super important part of what we do. And it just, I think we just have that, that connection, even more of a connection to the food that we're, you know, preparing and serving our guests, you know, because we literally found that ourselves. And we know what to look for and all that good stuff. And then farm, obviously, that's absolutely huge for us. It's extremely important to support, you know, our local farms that are around us. You know, these are animals that are built on the terroir that is right around us. Sometimes it's three miles, sometimes it's 20 miles, you know. And again, I think you feel like that connection, especially when you have that connection with your farmers and you get to talk to them and you give them feedback and they get really excited and they call you and they're like, oh, I've got this growing or, you know, these pigs will be ready next week. And we're trying this, you know, cross heritage thing. And it's just, it's very exciting, you know, and it's something that we all feel really good about. And at the end of the day, we know that our guests are getting getting these products as well, you know, whether it's forage or whether it's two years old or, you know, it came from down the street. And one thing I really noticed within the pandemic this time, people are really excited about that. They're really, really supportive of like supporting local, supporting your neighbors, supporting the people that are 20 miles from us, you know, growing these animals. And they love the story and they love the, the thought that, you know, there's so much care put into everything they're eating. And where is your passion, you know, for charcuterie coming from? I had a, a French chef coming up. I've been cooking now for 19 years. I had a French chef coming up. His name was Andre Bedre. And he would bring in these terrines or jars of riette or chicken liver pate and these they were just these flavors that I had never experienced before like there's just a certain kind of acidic and almost like a little irony just there's just I don't know it was like these flavors like I said I had never experienced before I didn't know how to make them and I kind of found a love for it at that point and a little before I started working at FT33 here in Dallas. I was lucky enough to break down a pig with another chef here, David Uger, who is extremely talented when it comes to charcuterie. And he showed me, you know, the basics, like this is where you cut to get your prosciutto. This is what you do to get a copa. You know, this is how you make head cheese. And from there, I just kind of ran with it. It was literally the first time. And I think at that point I'd been cooking for let's see, like 12 years, something like that. And it was the first time in my whole career that something just clicked. Like I just got it, you know, it was just an immediate like love. I just fell in love with the whole process of butchering, aging. So that's kind of where that came from. And 
from that point on, I just ran with it and I just started experimenting. And then once I realized, you know, you can do this with this cut, then, oh, I can do it with this cut and I can apply this technique to this and I'll add this. And so, yeah, yes, I'm curious about this is because it, you know, it's anchored into a lot of tradition and, you know, a lot of tradition coming from Europe with between, you know, like Germany and France and uh, Italy and Spain. A lot of, you know, obviously charcuterie and, uh, and uh, tradition around meat there. And how do you, you know, innovate when it comes to charcuterie? What's the, the approach here? Because you are doing some interesting stuff with, you know, around charcuterie. Right. It's just always trying to see what would happen, you know? Like, I have a very curious mind. I'm very much... I think a little bit fearless sometimes when I'm like, oh, let's just see what happens. You know what I mean? And it's kind of at a risk of like, well, this could fail horribly or this could be really awesome. But also, you know, doing things within the realm of understanding how how food works, how protein works, how pork and beef and all these things work um, with the knowledge that I have of very traditional techniques that are still applied. But I mean, um, within that same sense, it's kind of that's how the whole Koji thing came along, too. I mean, this is something that's been around for thousands of years. And I, you know, we started applying two different, very old school, traditional things into making something that is new in a way. You know, it's using very old school, very traditional. But what we're creating is something that's different and new and exciting, you know? And I think that's just kind of what it is. Like I said, I think it's just over years, just kind of learning like this works this way and let's see what happens, you know? And I've had tons of failures, tons of projects that have gone completely awry, you know, but within that, I learned something as well. You know, I learned what not to do or what I could do different. Sure. So what are your source, uh, uh, sources of inspiration? I will have to say, I think like just nature in general is a huge, huge source of inspiration for me. Whether it's the way I look at a vegetable, the way we plate has a lot to do. It's very naturalistic. And, you know, just everything around us, the weather. Like I said, I think just in general, nature is a huge inspiration for how we do things. Do you have any inspiration coming outside uh, of food? Yeah, I mean, honestly, so like I said, I feel like I kind of have like a a bit of a curious, whimsical kind of ideal sometimes to the way I do things. I honestly, I love, I collect vinyl toys. I love artists. I love graphic novels. I'm a huge collector of comic books, graphic novels, and vinyl toys. I love to paint, so... I think a lot of inspiration sometimes will come from, you know, something I see or something that an artist does. And for whatever reason, you know, certain colors, certain shapes will kind of trigger, you know, something in my mind, especially if it's like the same day or the same week where I've been talking to one of our farms about what they have and, you know, what they need to push. I think kind of all of that is very inspirational and kind of like what drives a lot of creativity for a lot of our dishes here do you have an example of um, something that you you know i don't want to put you on the spot here but uh, <laughs> you know something that you had created uh, linked to um i don't know a graphic novel or uh, totally, something else absolutely visual? 
It's funny that you ask because I was literally, there's this one graphic novel that I continue to pick up and read over and over again over time. It's called Uzumaki. It's a horror graphic novel, and that's, you know, specifically what I do like. A lot of it is about spirals. So it's very dark based. It's all black and white. It's about spirals that end up taking over people's minds and how people become obsessed with it. And it just comes to the point to where kind of becomes these people's demise, you know. There was a couple of dishes, you know, especially it's winter time, you know, you kind of have that like dark feeling a little bit. We created a a sundae, which is a pig's blood sauce that was kind of inspired by these spirals that I had been reading about in this graphic novel, you know, for like the fourth time or whatever, you know, and doing- so how how was it visually then? Oh, well, I mean, I liked it. You know, it was like a sauce of pig's blood and we did a roulade of pork. And, you know, so there's everything in it was almost spiraled, you know, and we had turnips, which are circular. Like, so, I mean, a lot of things I'm kind of inspired by, you know, it could be all different things. It could be, be very naturalistic looking from nature. It could be, you know, something I've read or something I've seen. And that really does inspire plating or a technique that I'm like, oh, I want to do this, you know, or feeling even. I think that's mostly what it is. It's like a feeling that you get and you want to create that and you want to express that. So, I mean, yeah, definitely. <laughs> that definitely did inspire that dish for sure. And I, I know you have done a lot of pop-ups like around the country and I guess you have collaborated with, uh, you know, other restaurants, other chefs and If there's anything else that as well uh, participated as a source of inspiration? Oh my gosh, absolutely. I will have to say during this pandemic, the thing that I absolutely miss the word or miss the most is being able to travel and do events, do indie shows, which is a uh, like an awesome one. And then just doing, you know, the festivals, you know, Atlanta Food and Wine and Fester Farmers, all this stuff. You know, you come in contact with other chefs that you may be friends with, but they live across the country, you know, so it's not like you, you talk all the time, but it's that time to get back together and catch up and, you know, talk about what's been inspiring them and then seeing the food that they create and you guys collaborate, you know, it could be six different chefs collaborating on one dinner and seeing everyone's thought process, seeing how they treated something that you wouldn't even think of, you know, and you're like, well, that's really cool. Do you have an example of uh, something that uh, you, know, you have seen from another chef that blew your mind? Oh, my gosh. I don't even know. I don't even know if I could pinpoint one. I mean, it's just been it's just been insane. I mean, so many people I will have to say. So I did this amazing event in Winnipeg called Raw. Each day, there's two, essentially two restaurants or two chefs cooking, and it's all on the frozen Winnipeg or Manitoba River. And they build like this really cool like structure. They bring designers in and it's all on the ice. And we cooked with the guys from St. Lawrence. And, you know, it's all very Quebecois and beautiful. And they did the most beautiful petiviers that I'd ever seen. And just seeing that, I came back and my family, my dad's French, we're French Canadian. So I was super inspired because I hadn't made one of those in years, you know, since I was a really young cook and came back completely inspired. And they were so delicious and so beautiful. And just, I mean, that's probably something that really sticks out in my mind is cooking with them. 
you know, it was such a kind of like old school, very traditional classic dish. And they just made it. It was just absolutely perfect and beautiful. Do you have a favorite dish that you have created? I know it's a tough question because it might be Ooh. different from one year to another, a season to another, a month to another. Yeah, <laughs> it's always different. I will have to say, hands down, I think it's the pigtails. I think the pigtail dish is just like my all-time favorite thing. It's something that I never get tired of eating. I never get tired of doing new sets for. And it's always so... So exciting and so awesome. You know, when someone tries them for the first time, they're kind of weirded out. They're like, whoa, are these actual pigtails? And you tell them yes, and they eat it. And it's just, it's amazing. It's just so hard to not enjoy, you know? How are they different from other pigtails recipes? I mean, I'm not too familiar with other pigtail recipes, but I mean, ours are, uh, we do them the same way, but we do different sets. But ours are braised in sweet tea and preserved chilies and honey and sugar so we braise them out for about I think about eight hours and then we debone them while keeping them intact and cut them into small like bite-sized pieces i guess and tossed in cornstarch and then fried and then after that they're tossed in the reduction of the braising liquid which is just delicious like it's so hard to not like you know <laughs> so where this idea of curing meats with teas came from? I'm not really sure. So I, I will have to say the first restaurant that I was at, it was actually a brewery. And mm -hmm. I was very inspired by... Fermentation again. Process. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, absolutely. I loved it there. We used all the grains and we did this. It was so much fun. But I was very much inspired about the use of grains and different herbs and flowers that they would use in different tree barks and um one day i was just thinking like what if we did you know a tea inspired dish but still within our style and that's kind of how the pigtails came to be was you know knowing how breezing works and all this stuff but then also getting a better understanding of infusion and you know steeping and all these really cool things that they were doing with the beers at the time and we just imparted that into how we prepare the pigtails. So as you are talking about, like describing a dish, I would like to pick up your brain. What would be your suggestion how a home cook can prepare with you? I think that we should select something like uh, like Riette, but, you know, Misty Norris style. So what unique uh, spin would you suggest them to make? The first, how they would make the Riette and then right. how is it special? you know, coming from you? Oh, man. So I would say for uh, something that I think is always interesting and always delicious and pretty easy to do at home, you could get pork shoulder, you get a beef chuck roast, any kind of protein that you really would want to use, you could use duck. And it's all about the, the technique and methods. So, you know, you want to braise that out and essentially Take it off the bone if there is a bone and shred it to where, you know, they're just like fine kind of fibers. And then if you have like, say you have, you know, maybe some duck fat at the house, or you have some extra pork fat, you know, if you do pork shoulder, there's always like a good inch or two after braising and you just whip that back into it. And if you don't have duck fat or pork fat easily, 
is just as delicious using butter, if not even more delicious, you know, so you can always use some kind of fat that is stable to whip your protein with. And then we really love here, we like to add pickles into it. You can add a little bit of vinegar, lots of nuts. We love using pumpkin seeds, sunflower seeds, you know, peanuts, pecans, stuff like that for texture. So you braise it, shred it, whip it with fat, a little bit of your braising liquid, set it in a pan and just let it go chill for, you know, overnight. If you like, you could cap it with more fat or butter. You don't have to, but it's a great thing for like parties. You cut it into, you know, like kind of like a rectangle for slicing and let it temper for about 30 minutes or so before eating it. But it's just probably one of the my favorite things to eat. And it's so easy to do at home. And everyone always really enjoys it. What kind of blend of, uh, of meat, like type of meat that you are? are using so you're you're talking pork you're talking mm -hmm. i think you can use chicken i remember when i was in france we were using rabbit uh you know mm -hmm. sometime in the, in the mix so uh oh, what, what would be your oh. your suggestion especially at home i think probably the more accept most accessible thing would be probably like a nice pork shoulder or you know like a beef some kind of beef roast something that's got a good amount of fat to it but that's mm -hmm. not too fatty you know that's why i say pork shoulder is probably like the easiest, if you're going to do this for the first time, that's probably the thing you want to use because it's got a pretty good mix of lean to fat. Okay. Yeah, because meats like rabbits or chicken will be definitely mm -hmm. not, yeah, not little, fatty enough. Yeah, a little leaner. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, rabbit, oh my gosh. So oh, yeah. Amazing. <laughs> Just thinking about it <laughs> and spread that <laughs> so in a good. very nice, thick, uh, you know, slice of, uh, of uh, bread. Hmm. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. Crusty bread and riyadh, that is... Probably one of my favorite things of all time. Yeah, absolutely. I love, you know, charcuterie boards. So that's uh, always my favorite, uh, you know, when I go to, to a restaurant. What is your latest uh, ingredient obsession? Honestly, man, I go back to turnips every year. As soon as turnips are available. I'm turnips? Like I, okay. I love turnips. I love, love turnips. So turnips? this is, you know, this is in the fall. Yeah, fall, beginning of the right. winter. But what, what about, uh, so maybe... We should talk about like in obsession, ingredient obsession per season. So thinking about spring, you know, winter and uh, summer. Okay. So right now, turnips. Absolutely. Come springtime, green garlic, garlic scapes, okay. any kind of allium. I'm, I'm all about, like I am all over it. Obviously, summertime, beautiful tomatoes. They're worth waiting the whole year, you know? Mm -hmm. And let's see. What am I missing? Let's see. Fall. I will say the late season peppers, especially being here in Texas. We have a little bit longer season for peppers than maybe some other states. But those last season peppers, the shishitos, the padrones, the baby bells, you know, all the really good ones. We were pretty obsessed with those. We love preserving like fall peppers, I guess. So they'd be like the very end of summer. We love preserving those for the whole year, especially shishitos. I am absolutely obsessed with doing shishito conservas. And we usually get enough in to last us through the year until next time we can get them. So let's, let's, let's go back in time, you know, a little bit. What compelled you to, uh, to become a chef? And is it linked to a specific moment of like tasting anything unique or different or um, maybe in your family? Yeah, for sure. I remember decided I wanted to cook at a pretty young age. 
I didn't realize that that was something that you could do as a career. You know, you know, as a child, you don't really understand the ins and outs of like business. And from a small kid, I thought, you know, you always had to be hired by someone. But my momo and my grandfather owned a restaurant in Beaumont. And I remember the first time I tried boudin, like fried boudin balls. My momo had uh, my dad's house. Okay. And, oh, my gosh. The first time I had boudin, I was about eight years old. And, you know, my momo was just, you know, at the stove cooking and she had her cast iron out and she put one on a napkin and put it in front of me and just breaking it open. And the smell alone was so intoxicating. And then biting into it and the texture and the flavor, it was just something I had never, ever experienced before. And that's that's kind of when I knew, like, I didn't necessarily tell myself I'm going to be a chef. I just knew I had something in me and a desire to do something with food. I didn't know yeah, what it was, was about food, but I knew. Yeah, I knew I wanted to learn how to do that. So do you have like, uh, you know, I heard about, you know, Momo, I did use about Buddha. And so do you have like any Cajun, you know, uh, background in your, in your yes. family? Yeah. Ah, okay. Yeah, a lot of Cajun. I grew up with a very Cajun family. <laughs> okay. I'm going to finish the uh, interview. I'm going to give you your free time that you can, um, you know, sp spend the rest of your day experimenting in your kitchen mm -hmm. <laughs> for new recipes. Yeah. So we're going to finish with a series of rapid fire questions, if you don't mind. Yeah. Um, so you and I are going on a tasting tour in Dallas. And let's say there's no, there's no COVID, obviously. So what are like the five spots that you will take me to outside of, um, yeah. you know, your restaurant? I would have to say first Lucia, which is an absolute amazing Italian restaurant. Salaryman, which is probably some of the best ramen that you'll get here. Really awesome. What's, what's, the, name of, what's the name of the place? Sorry, I didn't catch it. Oh, no worries. It's called Salaryman. Okay. It's actually right next door to the next restaurant, which I was going to say is Machalayo, which also their charcuterie program blows everyone out of the water, especially here in town. I can't really think of anyone in Texas that does what they do. And then I would have to say, let's see, after that, Mathaba is an absolute amazing. It's a Vietnamese restaurant. And the flavors there are just insane like you really can't touch them it's just good you know i don't really know how else to explain it and i have one more let's see cosmos i almost forgot cosmos they do vietnamese food as well and it's so insanely good absolutely okay. crazy very good but so those would definitely be the spots that i would have to taste. what's your favorite guilty pleasure food french fries french fries without a doubt french <laughs> okay with anything <laughs> together with anything on top or honestly french fries and ranch like i will you know if and i ranch. go out yes if there's french fries and ranch like i'm gonna eat that i won't even eat my food that i ordered i'm just gonna eat that <laughs> okay <laughs> <laughs> can you share with us like three cookbooks that inspired you the most in your career the last supper that was one of the first ones I got way, I mean, I don't even know, was that 10, 10 plus years ago that that came out? That was probably one of the first ones I got. 
The book of fermentation from Noma is absolutely amazing. And uh, Wild Crafted Cuisine by Pascal is okay. also that one. Those three are my, my top. What's your biggest pet peeves in the kitchen? Noises. Loud noises. I hate okay. loud noises. Alarms. Anyone dropping a dirty station, loud noises, and alarms are probably my biggest pet peeves. <laughs> and the last one, beside the classics, what uh, condiments, spices, sauces do you, you like to have on hand at your home? Oh, at home? Can I count something that we make here that I just keep? Sure. Uh, okay. Yeah, absolutely. So my sous chef, Jessica Alonso, is insanely talented when it comes to fermentation, all this stuff. She makes a vegan XO that is mm. insanely good. That is literally wow. good on everything. So that's definitely one. Any kind of chili oil, like a twisted chili oil, I always have at the house. Okay. And wasabi. I love wasabi. Okay. Like wasabi powder. I always have wasabi powder at the house. Very good. <laughs> uh, thank, thank you very much, Chef. Uh, thank you for your time, your patience. Uh, I really appreciate it. And I'm very, I was very excited to, you know, to have you um, on Flavors Unknown. Yeah, this was so great talking with you. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for listening to the show today. I really enjoy hearing Chef Misty Norris talking about zero waste in the kitchen, her passion for farms, fermentation, foraging, and fire, and her innovation approach to charcuterie. You can find the show notes of these episodes on the website flavorsunknown.com. And if you like this episode, please share it with a friend. Have you heard about the Facebook group called The Learning Chef? It is full of great tips from chef to other chefs. Please check it out. My next guest will be Ryan Burke from Angry Orchard. He's going to talk to us about the process of making cider. What does innovation mean for cider making? He's going to talk to us about using cider in cocktails and in food pairing. I see you in two weeks. And until then, remember that people who love to eat are always the best people. You've just enjoyed another delicious episode of Flavors Unknown. Hungry for more? Hit subscribe. Tell us where you're listening from by leaving a review. And for social media and show notes, head to flavorsunknown.com.